Hi everyone, and welcome back to Illuminal Space, a podcast that seeks to explore and reimagine the world in which we live. I'm really excited to share this episode with you in conversation with Tyson Yunkaporta. Tyson is a member of the Appalachian clan in far north Queensland in Australia, and is also a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne. He has worked extensively with Aboriginal languages and in Indigenous education, and his research activities include oral histories of natural disasters, language, health, and cognition. Tyson has recently released a book called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, which is making a huge impact around the globe. In Sand Talk, Tyson encourages us to look at global systems through an Indigenous lens and challenges us to think differently and reconsider our relationship with each other and the natural world around us. The book is both philosophical and practical, offering techniques and processes for living and learning. It's a book of sense-making, bringing clarity to complexity. It was a real honour to have this opportunity to speak with Tyson. He's brutally honest and unfiltered, at times confronting, but always speaks with an incredible authenticity and passion. Just before we begin, to hear more of these episodes, subscribe on your favourite podcast platform, leave a review, and rate it with five stars. And just a quick note, Tyson was actually outside in a park when I spoke to him because it was the only place he could find to get some silence away from crying kids. So there may be a little bit of wind noise in the background, but I hope it doesn't detract at all from what Tyson has to say and the wisdom that he shares with us all. But for now, buckle up as we enter a liminal space with Tyson Yunkaporta. You're in for quite a ride. Hi Tyson, and welcome to a liminal space. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty damn liminal. It's liminal. <laughs> well, I know uh, time is very precious. You've had to get yourself out of the house to find some quiet time. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to have a chat. Yeah, yeah. There's just, there's kids everywhere all the time. It's, uh, but that's just life. That's life. <laughs> so um, yeah. let's get stuck into it. I've, I've just finished reading your book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And what a book. How'd you go? Uh, yeah, well, it blew my mind on many levels, and uh, I kind of, I was half reading it and half studying it in a sense, you know, taking lots of notes as I went, and uh, it was super interesting. Um, for those that, that haven't read the book, and I absolutely encourage everyone to get out there and, and grab it, can you give us an idea as to sort of what was your intention in writing the book and the main messages that you wanted to get out? Um. Yeah, well, I, I guess it's it's kind of a delivery system for uh, um, old man Juma's stuff mostly. Uh, n- a number of sort of messages and tasks that elders elders have given me over the years, um, you know, to to do out in the world. Uh, but particularly old man Juma's uh, symbols there. He's sort of I don't know. It's kind of this big ritual magic. Uh, he wanted me to um, share with as many people as possible by any means possible. Um, yeah, he sort of sees it as, as something that will change people at the molecular level, you know, change people's DNA and, um, you know, make big change in the world. And, you know, it's, um, I don't know, you know, when you hear things like that, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, and on one level, and but then on another level, you're kind of like, yeah, nah. <laughs> but uh, it's, it, it has had a very strange effect on, on a lot of people all around the world. Uh, lots of different kinds of people and yeah so I guess that was my intention in doing it was really just to try and put something together as a delivery system for that um, but the areas of uh, 
interests that I've sort of studied and researched and been working in and writing around uh, for years has kind of been um, a lot of the stuff that no one else wants to look at. Um, you know, so I, I kind of, I, I don't sort of trespass into other people's lanes. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, high status scholars and thinkers and elders out in the world who are, you know, uh, doing all the cultural awareness kind of side of things and, and um, all the stuff that you see with indigenous knowledge usually. So the stuff that's kind of left over that nobody really wants to look at, that's what I've been looking into, like cognition, consciousness, you know, cybernetics. Um, yeah, and, and just kind of the stuff that's left over. And so I, I, I sort of cobbled together a lot of my thinking around that uh, sort of tied in with how they tied in with all these stories and messages uh, old people wanted me to put into the world. Hmm. And yeah, so that's that's what it was. <laughs> so it's sort of viewing the current world that we live in through an indigenous lens. I mean, that's how I would describe it. Yeah, basically, it's almost uh, reverse anthropology. So I think people go in there looking for indigenous knowledge and wisdom, um, but that's not what it is because it's it's the knowledge is not in the content it's kind of in the process, you know, it's in the methods of inquiry and, um, you know, the ways of assessing and evaluating and digging around in new knowledge. Uh, to, I guess it's a sense-making yep. mechanism. And that's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of hit the scene at a time when there's a crisis of meaning in the world and people are obsessed with sense-making, you know, across a lot of disciplines from psychology to tech, to uh, all kinds of things. And uh, yeah, people are struggling with that a bit. So I, I guess they've, they've kind of grasped, a lot of people are grasped at this like a, a drowning man at the moment. Yeah. And why you? <laughs> yeah. Why was this sort of um, asked or requested of you? Or why did you take this space? Or why did you take this upon yourself? Is it because you're experts across those fields or you don't actually fit into anything and, and you're able to move across no, all of these spaces? I, I'd like to say I'm a polymath but i mean you kind of have to have a certain degree of expertise across a, a lot of fields before you're a polymath so i'm not sure what i am um <laughs> but is there in indigenous culture yeah. if you're asked to do something by an elder is there sort yeah. of a yeah you just it's just it's just something that that you kind of accept or um or you find yourself you know on the outside of things pretty quickly you know yeah um yeah it's funny like that you know, talk a lot about the authority that our old people have and have a lot of authority. And they don't do a lot of decision-making. You know, they kind of leave that to the rest of us sort of in a distributed and collective way. We do a lot of the decision-making. And so, you know, power and um, our agency and everything else is kind of spread throughout the community. I mean, ideally, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of times... Yeah, I mean, there, there is, you know, a lot of dysfunction, et cetera, that where that, that actually goes wrong and you get a lot of hierarchies sort of forming now, you know, around committees and funding and, and sort of areas like that. I try to stay away from those and, and sort of, you know, talk to a lot of the people who are still really inhabiting and living that pattern uh, because that's where I live, you know, in, in those sections of the community. So you kind of just have to do, yeah, when they sort of put that on you, you kind of do that if you sort of ever want to progress um you know with it within that in sort of any way and and you know uh 
you know, continue to reap the benefits of, of you know, being part of a, a supportive community. Yeah. Uh, a supportive community with um with a kind of sharing economy where where you um you know you're always looking after each other and and therefore you're going to be looked after when you um when you sort of fall low it's a bit of a safety net you know yeah yeah that's what I find really interesting the the book also because it talks the book sort of it's like a self reflexive text it it talks about the process of writing the book if that makes sense. So yeah. by yeah. by example, you're actually proving this other perspective or other way of working by telling us how you worked to write this book in a way. Yeah. So it's very yeah. um, practical also rather than just academic, I would say. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a lot of like uh, thought experiments. Exactly. So applying those processes and those patterns of logic, um, applying them to some of the messy problems in the world, you know, um yeah like uh i don't know just some interesting ideas about the global financial crisis and uh, you know uh the potential of having um you know like what what might happen if we sort of made a few tweaks in in sort of finance and and the economy so that um you know extended families uh could collectively own capital rather than that being you know nominally in the hands of an individual you know, um, yeah, what if an extended family was able to own capital collectively? And then what that might do for the economy and, you know, what kind of safety nets that would provide that would, you know, take uh, away a lot of problems of the welfare burden and all that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just applying, applying patterns of, you know, Indigenous kinship, thinking, problem solving, um, everything, you know, sense making. Uh, dialogue, all these things, you know, how you might apply those to a lot of the crises that are kind of adding up to a meta crisis right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I guess it was when, at the time when I wrote it, it was kind of like one of the criticisms in the editing process was kind of like, you know, yeah, but you know, you're a bit of a chicken little here. The sky is falling kind of thing. You know, it's uh, things are a lot more stable than that. I I don't think you know, these this crisis is there's 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 going to be a big crisis that's going to engulf the world, etc. <laughs> yeah, but then uh, you know, by the time it hit the United States, the book, then you know, there were about ten crises happening at once, and and the world was on fire. Yeah, you know? I seem it seems to be so, um, it seems to be perfect timing, seems to be the perfect voice. Yeah. And in a way, you seem to be the perfect, even though possibly a reluctant um, person with the microphone or on the podium, let's say, reluctant in the sense that, you know, I, I know you've got other things in your life to, to do and to, to spend your time, but it just seems like this is the right time, right place, and you're the right rebel, in a sense, to, to shake things yeah. up. Um, <laughs> and I thought maybe... I, I'm not a rebel by... I'm not a rebel by choice. I've just got a, a, a bunch of colliding marginalities that kind of, um, you know, uh, put me out of things and and sort of give me a sufficiently kind of low status in the academy and in the community and everywhere else that kind of allows me to, I guess, be able to have a perspective on seeing how things work and seeing the processes. Yeah. You know, it's like being being a fish that's able to sort of 
jump out of the water and up on the bank for a minute and have a look back in and go, oh, shit, there's water there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know exactly what and you mean. And then sort of describe that water and then therefore be able to look at the air and go, oh, how is that different from the water? Ah, oh, there's, there's some interesting uh, things going on here. <laughs> hey, fellas, we're breathing oxygen, but it's it's different up here. <laughs> that, that kind of thing, yeah. Do you mind if I read a couple of sentences from, uh, I think, the second page of the book, and then I thought that would be a way into, into talking about the content. All humans yeah. evolved within complex land-based cultures over deep time to develop a brain with the capacity for over 100 trillion neural connections, of which we now only use a tiny fraction. Most of us have been displaced from these cultures of origin, a global diaspora of refugees severed not only from land, but from the sheer genius that comes from belonging in symbiotic relation to it. Mm. Pretty deep stuff. Yeah, there's a lot in that. And there's, there's, there's elements of that that are quite uh, are highly contestable and contested as well, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been having those, those yarns for a year and it's been really interesting. I mean, there's the kind of pop science idea that, oh, we only use 5% of our brains or whatever, and that's, that's not really true. Um, but that's not really what I'm saying there either. <laughs> so what are you saying, what are you saying yeah, about, in that sentence? Yeah, well, the words were that there's a capacity for trillions of connections, neural connections in the brain, but we're not, we're not using many of those. You know, but then uh, the neuroscience would say, well, you know, there's a lot of pruning that goes on. You know, uh, from early childhood, there's a lot of pruning that goes on and, and you actually increase your intelligence with quite a bit of that, uh, you know, pruning a lot of those connections, et cetera. Um, but that's also contested. So, yeah. <laughs> but, but basically, um, I, I'm, I'm challenging the discourses of primitivism, this idea of, uh, you know, um, pretty much all the disciplines from psychology to economic theory to everything else is predicated on a wrong story of a paleolithic sort of caveman past, you know, um, they're, they're prepared to acknowledge that, you know, Cro-Magnon, et cetera, and c cavemen had like a 10% bigger brain, um, than today. Um, uh, but the way they explain that away is that, um, is hypervigilance, you know? And so they build a lot of ideas around this primitive fight or flight responses that, um, you know, as our, our reason for being a destructive creature that ruins the world and we can't help ourselves. We've got to wreck it because we've got these fight or flight responses all the time. Um, you know, because when we were cavemen, anytime you hear a sentence in science that starts with when we were cavemen, you know that a bit of bullshit that is not supported anywhere by any real research is about to be said. And it's just people fantasy projecting themselves back like, what would happen if they were like dropped like bear grills in the middle of the wilderness? How would they respond? You know, but that's not what indigenous life is like when it's embedded in the landscape that you're, you're a part of. And that is our paleolithic past. You know, we don't have fight or flight responses and hypervigilance where we never know when a tiger's going to jump out and eat us, you know, <laughs> So your brain always has to be switched on. That's why their brains were bigger. Not because they were doing anything intelligent, just because they were shit scared all the time. But the fact is that, you know, you talk to anybody who still has a living memory of being embedded in a landscape and they will tell you, we always know where the tigers are. <laughs> 
we know where the fucking tigers are, bro. <laughs> because you just, you do. If you're of that place, yeah. you know where the tigers are and what time they're going to be where. You're not walking around scared that they're going to jump out. And on top of that, you also have a, um, you have a relationship with those predators. You know, we all have a relationship with the apex predators in our environment, um, particularly as human beings. You know, so if you were in uh, North America or Europe, you know, and right across into Asia, there in the old days, you know, you'd have a relationship with the bears. Nobody ever gets eaten by a bear, you know. You follow the bears to see what your diet is and to find the right fungi that are good for you to eat. You know, because the de- the bear has the same diet as humans. You know, um, yeah, up in the north of Australia, you know, it, nobody, there's no memory of anybody local ever having been eaten by a crocodile, because you know where the crocodiles are, and what's more, you have a relationship with them. You know, um, you know. So my mob used to tie the hair from the first haircut around a baby crocodile's head. And let that one go and you'd be connected to that crocodile and that would be your crocodile. And you go swim with that crocodile, hunt fish with that crocodile. Um, you know, there are photos, photos of the men in that community, you know, who would swim out into the river and call their crocodiles and lift the tails up to show the visiting tourists, you know, who take photos of that. It's You have a relationship with the predators. Yeah. And to have that deep understanding and embeddedness and that that very quantum view of reality and time and place and everything else, um, you know, within very complex structures that are designed to prevent, you know, excesses of human society from uh, creating imbalances. You know, if you're embedded in that, that, that's a lot of thinking to be doing. But then with a very, very rich, um, you know, ritual tradition and ceremonial practice and, um, and what we separated into the idea of arts and culture now, <laughs> but, you know, used to not have a name. It would just be part of your daily life. You know, very, very high-level meaning-making. Um, even, even a tradition of riddling. You know, you can find riddles, you know, uh, you know three, four-hundred-year-old riddles uh, from Gamilaroi country in Gamilaroi language uh, that, strangely have a very similar structure to that European riddling tradition. You know, so there are a lot of like um, uh, academic sort of leisure, like intellectual pursuits that were leisure pursuits and that were competitive, you know, and just designed to, you know, increase that cognition all the time and to keep you really sharp. So, you know, we have intellectual traditions and as human beings, we're all coming from really powerful and very complex intellectual traditions, you know, going back like a million years, you know, that's, that's the oldest examples I think of, um, of, of abstract, uh, symbols being found, you know, created by humans, uh, on the planet, you know, like, uh, carved shells, etc. Uh, like a million years old, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And the idea that this recent sort of domestication that's happened really over the last hundred years or so, um, the idea that that's the pinnacle of intelligence and the pinnacle of human development, the pinnacle of progress, you know, <laughs> the pinnacle of achievement, 
it's just um are you offended by that notion no 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 that's the that's the thing it's it's not about offense like that we've got to like you know just to be respectful we have to appreciate that you know indigenous cultures we really were quite sophisticated because that's pretty much all we get now you know all the discourse around dark emu it's just culture wars back and forth on whether or not people were um advanced enough to be respected <laughs> and you know I, I don't really have any skin in that game i'm i'm more about um well we're basing a lot of our disciplines on wrong story you know if you're building your psychological models and even your economies out of this idea that human beings are motivated by fight or flight pleasure pain responses and that we're monkeys in clothes um that don't have the capacity to be better than we currently are. <laughs> uh, if you're motivated by that, then basically what that creates is a self-terminating system. You know, if all of your disciplines are based on that, that, that foundational self-terminating algorithm, um, then you will destroy yourselves and everything else you know, um, as a species, but particularly as a species that, um, that is supposed to be the custodial species yeah. of this planet. Uh, we are the custodial species and we have been given all these gifts to be able to do that. Instead, we've, we've sold ourselves a lie and built this idea of game theory out of that. And game theory has informed our economic systems and this, uh, social Darwinism that was nothing like what Darwin, Darwin was actually talking about. And, you know, so we've created this uh, weird society to serve an economy that's based on this magical thinking and this idea that we're just an aggregate of all these self-interested individuals who are kind of, you know, swarming <laughs> around the place following our own self-interests and that that will dictate what is needed by the marketplace and that will be the invisible hand that will lift us all up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but at the same time that we can be manipulated by those primitive fight or flight responses, you know, to do this or that. But in fact, it's just something that we've been trained to do in our domestication over the last century. You know, when we've all been forced into this model of nationhood, because even the idea of nations, it, you go back a century and that, that, that was not the dominant form of social organization on the planet. You know, that was a baby of an idea back then, a century ago. It was only just over a century ago that that even came into existence. You know, before that, we were a very regional, regionalized species. You know, uh, a century ago, most of the people on the planet were... Um, we're still profoundly associated with and dependent on the land and we're living on the land. It's only over the last century we've, we've created these massive monocultures, these massive nations with millions of people, you know. And it sounds like you're very much challenging and reclaiming or attempting to reclaim and, and supporting mm. others to reclaim stories that like wrong stories, wrong stories that were made up by people who were the oppressor, who wanted to make up a narrative that made it very easy mm. to continue to oppress in many ways and continue yeah. to separate. And I think it's, it's kind of, 
it's it's interesting, but sort of the Anglosphere, liberalism, all this this kind of thing, this global economic system, it's kind of its own complex adaptive system now. So it kind of, you know, for a long time, it's just been self-organizing and it's been evolving. You know, basically we set uh, a bunch of, um, you know, just some some bad stories in place which you know were put in place by people you know who were they were just trying something out i guess you know ten thousand years or so ago but basically we created a, a system of perverse incentives that, that 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 then resulted in a this weird uh set of evolutionary dynamics you know that inevitably just kept um increasing increasing growing snowballing into this massive kind of self-organizing demonic beast which um you know we call civilization and it's certainly not the best way to live um that doesn't mean we have to be running around in animal skins and you know bashing people over the head with clubs <laughs> in fact that's the wrong story that's the lie of our past that that sort of you know has to force us into this, uh, there's a loop. Every time you start thinking about these things, you try not to have that thought come into your head. We can't go back. We can't go back. We have to keep going forward. <laughs> have to have progress. So, and that's where we start to get into the physics of time. Like we do some, uh, some physics thought experiments in the book too, working with indigenous uh, story and indigenous, you know, cosmologies where we kind of look at alternatives to that arrow of time, um, which sort of demands this, this continual progress idea that, you know, today is better than yesterday and tomorrow will be better than today. And that that's the imperative. We all have to work towards that grand project of continually improving until, you know, we're what these perfect beings just sort of sitting around, don't have to do anything. But I think that's gentlemen of leisure. That's a beautiful thing that gentlemen of leisure. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing that you do in the book. You seem to 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 challenge very directly um, even this concept of time. You know, you say like we have this idea that time is linear, and then you you put forward very simple but compelling, you know, not even arguments, but just explaining in your world that that nothing mm. should be considered to be. Um, fact in a way, you know, everything is a great myth, yeah. is a great mystery. Um, yeah. What I've also really been interested in is your more recent um, idea of sort of smashing the narrative or the stereotype of this kind of, how can I say it, poor indigenous story or a rags to riches story, perhaps of yourself, that, that, that an audience for, for some years, decades or generations have wanted to know that 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 story yeah. of someone rising above, you know, nothing, and now he's writing a book and he's famous and yeah. The only problem with that is that you know to to be to be Aboriginal is is to not be an individual, you know, and so you can't have any indi individual success. I mean, so what could you accumulate that wouldn't immediately dissipate if you are embedded in a um, a family? an extended family and a community, um, it, it's very hard to hold on to anything for yourself. <laughs> you know, um, 
I, I've started getting a few royalties in from the book, but I, I just hemorrhage them immediately, you know, because there's, there's so many people who depend on me, um, you know, and, and I, so I, ah, and I have to keep doing this job that I don't really like doing. Um, it sort of takes up most of my time, you know, so I've got to try and find, you know, two weeks out of every year that people normally have their holidays. That's when I write a book you know, <laughs> or do something for myself like that, you know, but that's, that doesn't uh, increase my brand or my market share or my, my wealth because that all just goes, <laughs> you know, there are always funerals and you no, know, not much money around. There are always funerals. There are occasionally weddings. There are, and there are constant, you know, uncle, I need Kimbis. <laughs> I can't, I got no nappies for the babies. Help. I'm stuck in Weepa. I can't, I got nowhere to stay. Help. You know, um, yeah. So you don't, there is no individual success and nobody really cares, you know, if you get like, um, you know, so I like, I did get a doctorate, but it doesn't really matter. It matters. It matters if I have to like, you know, um, write an affidavit you know, for court, or if I'm like, I uh, have to give someone a reference for a job that, and, and it's helpful to people in that way. Um, that's when it matters, but it doesn't, um, embiggen me, you know, I, I'm still like a low, I'm still a younger sibling, you know, and I'll always be a younger sibling. So I'm always going to be quite low status, even in my family, but then, you know, and in the wider indigenous community, I'm, I'm still, you know, like more than 50% of us, I'm still a, a fair skin person and um you know so quite marginal from that perspective as well you know <laughs> and you know and um and i'm also i mean you see how i talk i i, I just don't have i can't manage that quiet dignity <laughs> that knowledge keepers have and that uh, respected sort of people have so i'm never going to be able to be an elder or a you know big knowledge keeper or anything because i'm too silly you know I'm, I'm i'm swearing all the time making jokes and I like to have fun whenever I can. But the word that comes to mind, you say it as a negative. I hear you as a refreshing voice. I hear you unbound of limitations. I hear some, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I got this idea through reading your book, through listening to your interviews, that the opposite, that you actually somehow have been able to understand who Tyson Yankaporta is and rise above the collective and it appears to me that you're far less um, affected by perhaps negative, you know, you don't give a shit is how I get it, of, of, how, of what people yeah. say to you and, and think about you, which is refreshing. Yeah, it, it, it can be a bit of a superpower. Um, it's, I don't know, that, that just tends to upset people more though. You know, um, there are a lot of gating functions you know, for any community sort of living under the, the blanket of this economic system. Yeah. You know, there are, there are, you know, always powerful groups with vested interests. There are always gating functions going on left, right and center. And, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky place to be. And I, I guess, you know, most people sort of stay put. I don't know, but that's a, that's another thing, you know, that brings around about my marginality is that I, I tend to just say, fuck it, 
um, more often than not. And that does free you up to a certain extent, like to be able to, um, you know, put together interesting ideas and, and to, um, you know, combine disciplines, you know, where, especially in discipline spaces where you're not expected to be. And then you're combining two or three of them, but then placing that under a lens that is, you know, is not supposed to be looking there. Um, you know, so interesting things come out. Yeah. So I guess I, I, I'm, I'm liberated in my kind of, you know, uh, death wishy way of, of not really um, particularly caring about what people think about me. Um, yeah, that I, I'm liberated in that way. I don't know, my, my woman and I were talking about this earlier, that there's, there's a, a kind of strength that happens in the blows that you take throughout your life if you have, um, that every blow you take is, is showing you a chink in your armor. And if you're able to make meaning out of the, um, the transgressions against your dignity and all of the shameful things that happen to you and you get smashed and smashed and smashed. But if you, at each point of, of, of impact like that, you're making meaning, then you're not experiencing trauma. All you're experiencing is a, is a sort of a strengthening and a, an adaptation and a transformation, you know? Um, so I, I, and I guess I, I'm just, I'm basically just a product of abuse, you know, throughout my entire life, a product of just ongoing continuous abuse that um, just doesn't bother me um, like at all. Yeah. I, I got bashed up a couple of days ago. I didn't care. It was just like, oh, yeah, uh, that's uh, a bit stiff and a couple of bruises for a few days. She right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, um, yeah. I, and I, I think, I think we, we're sort of supposed to be, you know, out in the world and getting tested and knowing where our edges are and, and feeling that rough and tumble, you know? That's why I think a lot of people are attracted to kind of controlled, sort of dangerous you know, events and rituals and sports and pastimes. It's because we're all longing for that anyway. Yeah. So I've, I've never really been too bothered about the rough and tumble. Not since I was about 10 when I stopped talking about it and sort of just went, well, I'm still alive after all this. Still going, a few scars, bit of a limp. I can't hear out of that ear very well, but I'm doing all right. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I did hear as well that um, you made a conscious choice or maybe perhaps you were advised by, by elders or people that telling or perpetuating this sort of rags to riches story or this... Um, yeah, um, the stories of trauma. The stories of trauma yeah. was actually not moving the, the, the whole discussion forward in a, in a productive way. Yeah, and that was... Um... That was very hard because I, I used to enjoy, and I did it for a long time. You know, I'd tell my, all my history and, and all, you know, this is what my ancestors have gone through. And this is, you know, how I ended up here. And, and, you know, um, and I'd re-traumatize myself every time, but I kind of enjoyed it. You know, I, I think we, we all do. And, and I don't know, you kind of, there's some kind of social credit you gain from that or, 
some kind of um, social capital that you accrue when you do that, um, where you are, when you identify with your misery that is sort of not your fault that happened to you or whatever. Um, and it's, it's very compelling. And, but I, I don't know, I, I was, I was pulled up really sharply for it. Um, you know, by just a great thinker and a, and a mentor, a scholar from the Torres Strait who just really slammed me about it. He said, you've got to stop doing that. We've all got to stop doing that. And he challenged me to find a meta narrative. He said, forget about your personal narrative. Yes. You know, people love hearing that. You know, black fellas and white fellas, we love hearing that, going over it again and again, but that's not getting you anywhere. You know, you need to find the meta narrative. You need to find the big story for this world, and you need to tell that story, and you need to work with that and focus your inquiry in that. And stop telling your story because as soon as you tell it, if you tell it at the first, in the first part of a keynote, nobody hears anything else you've got to say in the second half. Um, that's all gone. All they remember is that, and um, and you know, if we're ever going to stop this uh, colonial amnesia from happening, um, then we're going to have to start coming into into the more meta and macro side of things. And you know, um, look, there is there's a there's a big market for those stories. And, and I think, and there's people who deserve to be there telling those stories and who have that market share of that. And, and they've, you know, they have a body of work behind them and a lifetime of struggle, you know, and, and they've, they've earned that place to be there and telling those stories and they're the right people to be telling them, you know, and not all of us are the right person for that, you know, especially when we're curating these narratives to kind of, Leave out the parts that make you look like a dickhead. And, you know, about 98% of everything I've done in my life makes me look like a dickhead. <laughs> so I had to, like, lose my attachment to um, trying to curate a story out of that that would make me look good <laughs> or make me look like, well, yeah, I, I'm a dickhead, but it's not my fault. That's your fault <laughs> or something. And... I don't know. I just had to embrace the whole thing and go, this is who I am. I'm a bit of a dickhead. Um, what is it that a dickhead can do? Probably some interesting things. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see what, um, what, what that produces. Well, I think the, the book is absolute testament and example of, you know, it, it, it's easier. My, my own filmmaking um, has, focus in the last years on stories of migrants, refugees, asylum seekers. And I, I, I find many of the themes quite similar in there is a story that is almost expected to be told by, by both sides, by the storyteller mm. and by the listener. And each time it's told again, it just, it just reconfirms a stereotype or it reconfirms a story that and it puts in a box and a pigeonhole, you know, that's that person and that's that experience, not the individual experience. It's sort of the, the, the collective. And, you know, mm. in my opinion, what you've done by writing this book is like literally millions of times more interesting and effective than, than getting up and telling your yeah. sob story in a sense or your, you know, yeah. and, and, and by... Or, or any story. Look, what, what, what do you call a... 
what do you call a, an author who doesn't have to tell their autobiography at the start of a book? Um, a, a white male author. <laughs> like, you know, straight away when you're reading a book, you know, wh whether it's a dominant culture male writing the book or not. Because uh, if it is, they don't have to tell their story. It, it's just their experience is known and assumed. And I don't know, I, I kind of, I really did enjoy sort of disrupting things a little bit around that. Um, you know, uh, in the end, like my, my first version of the book, just, just it had nothing. And it was quite, and it was quite um, aggressively arrogant around that. It was like, no, <laughs> these guys don't have to <laughs> do this, so I'm not going to do it either. Um, but yeah, in the end, it, it just, yeah, the publishers just went, no, you're going to have to, <laughs> you're going to have to share some stuff, um, you know, because you can go a certain, a fair amount of a way like that, but you, you have to tell something. And so I'm like, all right, well, I'll tell the absolute minimum. And, and then I, I did, and then I'm getting all these calls from people saying, you know, oh, I just finished, you know, like, um, ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so this, um, yeah, this um, Gundich Mara, you know, woman calls me up, you know, a few weeks back and she's crying. She's read the first chapter and, and she's crying, oh, my brother, your story, make me cry, you know, and I'm like, ah, that's like, I'm so sick of having to do that. Um, and it's like, yeah, and do you, well, what else did you notice in that chapter? Oh, well, nothing, you know, and I said some really important things in there about cognition and about um, about the the sort of gap between knowledge and print, you know, and, and, and the temporary nature of print and, you know, the problematics of, of thinking through a print-based kind of cognition. There were some really important things there and she didn't see any of that. You know, she focused on like, you know, although I did it quite minimally, you know, the tragic story and I'm like, ah, not even tragic. It's just silly. Just a silly and shameful story. It's just like, oh, man, well, look, that's who I am. And it's not very good. And I'm sorry, I can't be all noble and stuff for you. And, you know, and basically, you know, most of the crappy things that have happened to me have been my fault. <laughs> um, sorry, I can't be a, the, your tragic native or your noble native or you know, even your dark native or anything, I'm, I'm really, really not the authentic thing to be looking at, you know? <laughs> Do you know what I believe you are? I believe you're the authentic thing. You're the authentic individual. And um, yeah, I, I think it's... Oh my goodness. No, no, in the sense of I, like really when I was yeah. reading this, it's like this guy is brave. This guy is really smart and he's able to produce something that is extremely creative and tell stories in ways to engage us to think about the world differently. Well, that's what I got out of it. I didn't actually get your hmm. negative or sad story coming through the through the book. Oh, that's good. I mean, you talk That's good. Thank you. You talk about that chapter. Yeah. You talk about that chapter. I remember that vividly. It's about you're saying that it's all about relationships and connectivity and and people to people relationships hmm. in which to pass on wisdom yeah. and knowledge. Yeah. Well, because that, that idea of the individual, you know, and, and that we're all on this uh, self-actualizing hero's journey, you know, and that we're all like, you know, looking inwards and improving ourselves and everything. I, 
I don't do that. When I look inside, there's nothing there. <laughs> and, and when I look inside other people, I see nothing there too. There's nothing special there. Your, your mind isn't even inside of you. You know, I mean, it's part of it and there's a bit that goes on there. But, um, yeah, that look, all your, all your cognition, all of your thought, all of your memory, it, it, it exists in the spaces in between you and the, um, the others that you're related to, that you're in relation with and communication with in this world. You know, you're networked out to so many different human and non-human entities and most importantly, place. You know, where you are all the time, there's this constant flow of knowledge and information and, and everything. You know, and, and, but what is unique in individual is your fingerprint of those relations. Your web of relations is unique and no one else has it and nobody else ever has or ever will. Um, I wanted to ask, for you and for people that haven't read the book, what would be the main difference or differences in the ways of viewing the world in an indigenous way and in a non-indigenous way? Yeah, I think, um, I think people are focused on different things. You know, there, there are there are a lot of similarities and differences. And I argue quite strongly that this idea of the indigenous way of seeing the world is really just the human way. And that that's what we're all hardwired to do from birth. And that we, we have to be kind of, you know, abused and broken like a, like a wild animal being domesticated, you know, through childhood to kind of knock us out of those ways of thinking, you know? Um, yeah, and I look at some of the studies that have been done on that, the cognitive ones and all that sort of thing. But yeah, some of the, one of the main things is just context. Contextual cognition, contextual ways of thinking are, um, are how we're pretty much supposed to do things as a species. Yeah. Um, but in an industrialized human um, and somebody who's, you know, had to rewire their brain for um, print-based you know, logics uh, without experiencing anything else. Um, it's a very different way of thinking. That's it's it. It focuses, you know, solely on the task in front of you to be done. You know, humans have had to be domesticated into something that would fit into industry. You know, a worker that wouldn't care. You know, wouldn't care what had happened to the object they have to work on at their part of the production line, they wouldn't have to care where that came from and they wouldn't have to care about what was happening to it next or how their shift was organized or all of their workforce was organized or the, how their community was organized, that they would do that and then they would go home to their, their domicile and they would accept that as well. <laughs> you know, it takes a very particular kind of um, blinkering, you know, of your mind to be able to accept um, just the horrific abuse that a job uh, places upon a being, you know, and so the kind of cognition you need for that, it, it changes everybody. And you don't just, you know, so it's not some biological difference in an Aboriginal brain that would make us think in contextual ways. You know, it's actually mostly it's coming from different child rearing practices, you know, being in, raised in like sort of noisy, dense, uh, social environments with lots of adults doing adult things and um, uh, not having restricted clothing or swaddling 
uh, being fed and and uh, bathed and toilet and everything else according to biological need, but also according to what's going on around the place instead of a like a clock-based schedule for this is your bedtime, this is your, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, those things affect your cognition. And it's not just Aboriginal people. Uh, all the studies that have been done on this, um, more contextual thinking, you know, that's people in Russia. That's uh, people in Scotland. Um, that's people in Korea, um, still even in the city because of their grammar. Because in Korean, you have to put the context at the start of the sentence, <laughs> you know. So there's this very, this different kind of approach to figure and ground. You know, when you look at an image, you know, from an indigenous thinking point of view, you don't see that uh, the man walking his dog first. You know, you see what time of day it is and what season it is from where the sun is and where the light's going, where the shadow is, what kind of trees they are, what seasons that is. And like, look, there, there's a possum back there. He's probably going to be down there, there, that hole there. And you're looking everywhere all around. You see everything first. And in all that, there's a fellow walking his dog, you know. But whereas, you know, from a, a, a sort of a domesticated human point of view, and that includes a lot of, you know, um, Aboriginal people today, who've, you know, ha had to be raised up in that. You know, it's not some biological thing. It's, you know, people who are removed, they think like that as well uh, because they have to. You know, you just look at that picture and go, that's a man walking his dog. Oh, in, in the forest. <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of cognition, different kind of thinking. I think that's the main thing. Yeah. Uh, but there are lots of other things, and I go into sort of, you know, five different areas of, of ways of thinking and making meaning in the world and knowledge production, you know. So based on that, are you saying that in your mind, nurture is far, has a far greater influence than the nature and biology? Uh, well, that's another thing. Usually th there are no dichotomies. Usually anything where there's a forced choice between, you know, one position and another, usually it's a bit of both. And usually when you start looking deeper, it's not just one of those two things either on a continuum. There's usually about a dozen or even a hundred different things, uh, variables all contributing. And that's that other aspect of indigenous inquiry and thinking is that is that really holistic cognition where you're able to see all of those different stories and that you're able to put together a, um, an operating model, you know, a, a theory based on the aggregate of all those forces, all those stories, all those things interacting together. And that that model, that theory that you put together based on all that has a greater chance of, of, of offering you a successful prediction about what's going to happen. So it's really useful in research. You know, I, I, um, I, I talk about a lot of studies in the book um, that have been inconclusive, you know, in the scientific method because they're unable to replicate the results because they haven't included all the variables. And so I, I just, um, like I suggest that if, if scientists just include the variables of time and place in a lot of those studies where they can't replicate results, that it would change things a bit. So one of the examples I give is fish oil studies in one study it'll show that, that fish oil has a big effect on the kidneys and, and actually heals like, you know, necrotic, <laughs> you know, really 
terrible pathologies in the kidneys. And then in the next study, there'll be like no effect at all or a, a terrible effect even, you know, because they're just considering this substance fish oil to be a universal thing. And they're not considering place and time uh, because I mean, from an indigenous point of view, we know that, that, that the fat in a fish is only medicinal in a certain season and just for a couple of months. And if you don't get it in that window, then you don't get the medicine. And most people understand this on some level. Like what, what's the best medicine for a cold? Your mama told you. Uh, well, my mama was come from Italian heritage and, and we would have said uh, a little bit of lemon and some honey in hot water. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> uh, chicken broth. Absolutely. I'm a vegetarian now, yeah. so that's a bit more challenging, but yeah. That's it. <laughs> but that, uh, that chicken broth is in, um, you know, it, it's only in that season. And it just happens to be that in the flu season, that's when the chicken, uh, the chicken broth is medicinal. You know, because uh, in that season, you know, they're not funneling all of their energies into um, reproduction, reproductive activity. They're, fun they're, they're bringing that nutrients in. So chicken is medicinal in that season. You know, we have these symbioses as humans who've been living in a landscape. And, and Italy, I, I think, is one of the most resilient countries in terms of um, connection to landscapes and, and being shaped culturally by a landscape, uh, no matter what's going on, you know. Oh, we're all fascists now, are we? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, we're Italians. Oh, we're... unification of Italy. Yeah. All right. That was only five minutes ago, by the way. <laughs> They're like, oh, we're Italians now, are we? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I'm Umbrian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I'm still going to speak my language, you know, the same way my bio region tells me to speak it. Yeah. I'll talk Italian if I have to go on the news or go for a job. Uh, yeah. No worries. But when I'm at home, I'm speaking Umbrian because that's how we talk here. And that's our regione, that's our region there. And, and, you know, it's defined not by whatever kingdom wants to come in or invader wants to come in or political party or government or fascist or anything. No, that, that, that region, that border, that's defined by a bioregion and we're shaped by that. And this is my paese and it's family first, then it's my village, then it's my country, which is my bioregion. And there, then I'm Italian, and then I'm European, maybe. But uh, you know, <laughs> I'm from here, bros. <laughs> That's what I like about Italians. <laughs> That's what I like about the Italian diaspora. They, you know, so you're still coming. You, you got this. Uh, you're still shaped by this, this uh, extended family kind of ethic and way of relating, you know, in the world. And it's easier to talk to you than it is to talk to people who don't know anything. But you know have no living memory of a tradition beyond a nuclear family or, um, you know, a single parent family or something, you know, um, I just find it easier to talk to, um, fobs. Yeah. Frankly. I, th <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting from my own sort of Italian perspective, we're from a small village in Italy and mm. it's oh, which one? Of, uh, in, uh, in, quel, quel paese? in, uh, Palintaliano in, uh, in Calabria in the South. But hey, that's my favorite, the Mezzogiorno. <laughs> yeah. But using that as the example, you know, they would um, they have a great connection to the land. They have a great connection to the to the animals. If a if an animal is 
killed or, you know, traditionally, they, they would eat yep. all of that animal. They would eat all of it. Mm. They, would, they would make salami with, with part of it. They would, and then they would take the skin and make in, a musical instrument yep. with it. And, you know, it's it, very similar to some of these themes that you're discussing. For me, your book, the strongest point that I got was one word, connection. And, and, and the opposite of that is disconnection. And I believe mm. that the indigenous way is a far more connected way of life. My way of life is far more disconnected, and that's to people, that's to the seasons, that's to the land, that's to, that's to everything. And, and, you know, that was sort yep. of the, the strongest point that I got, that yep. if we can become much more connected to the world around us, that, um, mm. yeah, ultimately... When, look, when I, was, uh, when I was a young fella, I, um, well, I think I was 18 or 19, I might have been, I... I I worked my butt off for a year, like washing dishes, whatever I could do. And I got together two grand um, and, and, I, and I went to Italy, you know, <laughs> um, and I was working for Calabrians. <laughs> so, you know, and I really love the dialect there. Anyway, so I, I had to go to Calabria and I loved it and it was wild. And, you know, I, I went hunting there, you know, and I found out that in that tiny peninsula that's smaller than New South Wales, there are more people with hunting licenses in Italy than there are people in Australia altogether. <laughs> and, you know, those old fellas, they were going out on their land that they look after. Um, you know, most people are in the cities, but out in the countryside, there's stuff going on and Calabria is wild and, and there's fellas walking around with like beautiful shotguns and, and, and they're, they're, oh, I, I, I went hunting with them and we ate this chingale, you know, that boar and, you know, and the foraging, just do all foraging out, getting mushroom, getting, you know, chestnuts and, and, and all kinds of nuts, you know. Oh, look, I love, I, I love that thing. And when, as soon as I got back to Australia, of course, I'm just, you know, I just hanging out with lots of Italians all the time. Yeah, um, yeah I loved it. <laughs> I, I just, I love the whole Italian thing. It was, it was more familiar to me than, than you know, any, anything else around the place that's very interesting you know in, in the settler community and particularly like there's something about calabrians i just love so anyway it's really good to meet you that's um yeah <laughs> likewise that's why i like feeling very relaxed with you <laughs> well look on the same way i mean i think that this sort of uh, i hope i'm saying the right word tribalism in mm. a sense um yeah is very strong but to be, to be honest i mean None of these systems are perfect. There's a lot of negativity associated with this way mm. of life down in the south of Italy, you know, as well. And sometimes the family, yeah. the family front is a front and what's going on behind the doors is not exactly as peaceful and calm as, uh, as people would That's like. It. But there, um, I mean, there's a history. There's history there and there, there are a lot of economic pressures and yeah. all kinds of things contributing to that. But yeah. Can I read you my favourite or the, the, the paragraph that had the, the most, um, that touched me, had the biggest impression on me from your book. Um, and it's sort of viewing this, this um, idea of collective versus individualism. It is difficult to relinquish the illusions of power and delusions of exceptionalism that come with privilege, but it is strangely liberating to realize your status as a single node in a cooperative network there is honor to be found in this role and a certain dignified agency. You won't be swallowed up by a hive mind or lose your individuality. You will retain your autonomy 
while simultaneously being profoundly interdependent and connected. In fact, sustainable systems cannot function without the full autonomy and unique expression of each independent part of the independent whole. Mm. That paragraph basically smashed everything that I thought I knew in my 43 years on the, on the planet. Oh my God. I mean, the, the whole concept that, that within a, a collective, I can not only be individual, but even be more. But you're required to be, yeah. Yeah. The, co- the collective loses its health if you're not being your fullest expression of yourself. If you're not asserting your exceptionalism and, and, and you know, being all of that. See, it's another one of those forced choices. You know, in these gammon culture wars, we're all forced to choose between rampant individualism on the right and, um, and just sort of, you know, collective sort of, you know, disappearance on the left. <laughs> you know, we're just going to get subsumed into this big bureaucratic nightmare of collectivism, you know, or we're just going to be like these lone wolves running around, buddy, you know, just destroying the entire planet. That's your only choices, people. Pick one. Um, it's, it's terrible. So it, anytime you've got a forced choice, you usually it's like, no, nah, it'll be a bit of both. And then once you figure out how to, you know, live that entire continuum and to be in the tension and balance of that as an expression of yourself, then start looking out and noticing all the other things that are coming in and intersecting with that because it's seldom a binary there is no such thing as binaries. That's a logic that we've been fooled into. And particularly uh, since these devices started, because everything's a yes or no choice. You know, if you want to use an app, it's like, well, do you agree to terms and conditions that you haven't read? Uh, yes or no. <laughs> um, you know, it's it binary, even code. It's, it's, it's a one or a damn zero. But that's not what, that's what makes computing um, stupid and limited. That's why we haven't really improved, you know, the tech really in 30 years. I mean, it looks sexier and goes a bit faster, but that's about it. Yeah. But, you know, quantum computing sort of goes, look, basically we're doing all these zeros and ones with freaking electrons, right? We're shooting some light at some electrons, making them behave in a certain way, and we're telling them, hey, you're a one. And then we're telling another electron, hey, you're a zero and then we string them together and that's a bit but in quantum computing you've got qubits which is recognizing that well you know what the fuck an electron can be two things at once an electron <laughs> an electron can be sitting in your butt cheek and then ping up to mars or pleiades or somewhere and then ping back you know in a split second it can be anywhere and it can be anything. <laughs> so therefore in quantum computing, we can just adjust the, the light a little bit and say to the electron, hey, uh, you're a zero, but hey, guess what? Uh, you're also a one. Uh, is that okay? All right, good. Next one. <laughs> and then so they make qubits like that. Um, you know, so binaries, binary logic doesn't work. Not on the quantum level, not for optimal tech, not certainly not for optimal relationships. And above all, not for any kind of sense-making in this world. If we're expected to make sense with all these forced little choices and joining our little shitty tribes 
and you know having to subscribe to one ideology and everything that goes with that and then purity testing and policing that into insanity and infinity then we're all dead no more forced choices <laughs> no more forced choices yeah you don't have to choose between individualism and collectivism so from this the lot. from this indigenous and non-indigenous perspective is is your idea or your thought that they can coexist together or that the thinking must combine to be to there is a new we require a new way of thinking which is not coexistence but a mesh of indigenous and non-indigenous yeah yeah it's a it's a kind of a plurality but it, i mean it's but even that that reconciling idea sounds lovely and there's that oh ancient and new together the juxtaposition sexy and that's kind of where you know all the cutting edge thinking is now but hey we can't just look now we've got to look what's the next thing and the next thing we need to start thinking well um you know in, indigenous is what every human being is born as before we wreck them hmm. you know so it, we have to start thinking about a right of return a um you know this absolute emergency where we need to bring everybody on the planet back under the law of the land and we need to do it soon or everything and every everyone's going to die so what use even is a binary of indigenous and non-indigenous i don't like the idea of having to define myself in relation to a colony in order to have an identity and that's that makes my identity almost unknowable to most people even in my own community most people are defining themselves in relation to the colony so i am not that and then the colony is looking back and saying well we're not that we're non-indigenous you know <laughs> and so we have these struggles like going well even you know so modernism and then postmodernism which is basically just not modernism does it say what it is not really <laughs> but it certainly says what it's not so i mean everybody's defining themselves as well we're not them yeah you know but no one's really looking and saying well what are we um you know but so most of the old fellows that sort of guide me in my life they don't think like that they they're not binary and they don't think of themselves as something that's in relation or subjugation or anything you know to a colony they're just still what they've always been and what they always will be and and i i strive for that in my life um yeah and i know i've got my own path to that which is sort of tricksy and all that kind of thing um but yeah i, I just i really try to um just smash those those binaries and i just refuse to define myself in comparison to others i define myself in relation to others in relation by my relationships and my web of relationships um not whether i'm more this than that person or less that than that person you know uh you know how well i fit with the definition from this dominant culture or you know that foreign culture who's looking over here to try and see the exotic aborigine 
and they're usually really disappointed when they meet me and they find I don't have a bone through my nose and standing on one leg, <laughs> etc. You know, um, all of these things are just ephemera and just kind of just cloaking. And I'm not really, I just don't have time for them. I wanted to just finish with um, the way that you finish the book, actually. And you talk about an appropriate way of coming to indigenous knowledge and working towards sustainable solutions. And you use the words respect, connect, reflect, direct, or in your words, mm. spirit, heart, head, and hands. Mm. For us watching and listening to this, what is the thought behind those terms? Yeah. Well, that respect, connect, reflect, direct, that was um, Mama Doris Schillingsworth. That was, that's her, uh, she invented that. <laughs> um, yeah, we spent a long time just trying to figure out what this process, a respectful process of, um, of, of indigenous knowledge production was. And we ended up with that it was always those four steps. I'm um, starting with respect. And she says that um, uh, non-Aboriginal people coming into our communities always do it the other way around. You know, they, they come in and they direct change, you know, and then, you know, they don't meet all their outcomes and KPIs. So they stop them and reflect and they, they do get their measuring tools out and try to figure out what went wrong. Reflect, you know. Um, yeah. And then they realize, well, we needed to build relationships first. And so then, then they connect, you know, they have a barbecue or they try to connect. They have a barbecue usually and invite the elders and some come along. And then just before they leave, they sort of discover this respect. <laughs> and then they sort of fly out going, oh, we'll never forget you. I've learned so much from you. It's like, oh, thanks. And if you ever want to return the favor, like try and <laughs> do things the other way around. Respect, connect, reflect, direct. Anyway, that's her thing. Um, yeah, her her son died a couple of days ago. Yeah, so we're really struggling to raise the money for the, that funeral, <laughs> for that right now. Um, yeah, but that was her. That was her thing, and she's just um just an amazing lady. So I'm trying to get a lot of people to try and support her and um, send her money so that she can grieve in peace at the moment. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm sorry for sorry for that. Not easy <laughs> times for anyone. Yeah, that's true. And so in, in that, uh, that was her interpretation and you interpreted that as spirit, heart, head and hand. Yeah. And I think everybody, a lot of different people have their own way of looking at it. You know, some people were describing it as roots, trunk, branches and leaves. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, it's that just that. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of ways, a lot of ways of looking at it, and a lot of layers to it. You know, um, yeah, a lot of people are using that as a methodology or a process, and are working with it in that way. You know, like as a structure for the research or the project, and uh, some people are experimenting with it as a structure for like, um, you know, organizational change and stuff like that. And all around the world, people are doing interesting things with that framework and. I guess many other bits and pieces of story from that book. Uh, we did. I, I had a, I had a climate scientist contact me and say she's been sitting on all this data for like five years, 
but she couldn't figure out how to model it. She couldn't figure out how to model that data appropriately and then share it with people. And after she read my book, you know, she went to sleep and then woke up and the solution was there in her head, you know. Um, and there's been, like I get, once a week I get a story like that from somebody, you know, from economists, from, you know, people who are doing all kinds of really amazing, very complex scientific work and they've been stuck on a, a problem. And then they've read the book and they've found the solution in there, you know, which is, um, it's weird, isn't it? Do you know what's going on? I, I still, I still bring it, always bring it back to Juma's ritual magic. I, I think that's just working. That's working big, complex, emergent, you know, magics in the world that I, I can't even comprehend. And I don't even want to. Yeah. I'm happy to just sit back and watch it happen. Yeah. <laughs> that's a beautiful yeah. way to finish up i think let's let's leave it with magic and uh yeah again your, your book touched me a lot I'm, i'll leave some links below the chat um where people can can grab the book i imagine it's available Sweet. All, all the good bookshops and um yeah no worries thanks mate i know your time is uh like diamonds these days so I very much appreciate it and best of luck with uh with the book and yeah. look forward to the good next luck one. with your uh vegetarianism <laughs> I'm a year in and it's going all right. Thanks, brother. There's an old Calabrian saying, if you've got an eggplant, you've got a meal. So uh, <laughs> you'll do all right. Beautiful. <laughs> okay. See you. Love Bye. it. Thanks, Tyson. Ciao. Many thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode and go to aliminalspace.earth to access all episodes available as both video and audio podcasts. But for now, many thanks again, and see you next time in Aliminal Space. Mm -hmm.